A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 42, starting with verse 1. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. The word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 10, starting with verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Christ Jesus, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country, of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He has not he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. reading from the gospel according to Matthew. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you are coming to me? Jesus said to him in reply, allow it now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. After Jesus was baptized, he came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And a voice came from the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. One of the things that I've always been challenged by in preparing for to comment on the texts and for the sermons each week is 
I feel like if you've been around here for very long, you know that there's like a common thing that I feel like I'm just saying all the time, and that's that being a Christian is a very different thing. <laughs> it's a very unique thing. And I think one of the reasons why we're challenged by that is because our culture has just been so kind of had the name Christian for so long that we've just kind of felt like being Christian just kind of in the water, just kind of, well, in the water. Is, but being a Christian is just kind of part of our culture, kind of part of who we are. And so we've lost some of the uniqueness and some of the distinction of it. Uh, but one of the reasons why we do the practices that we do, so we worship week after week and we have certain practices and symbols and rituals that we do and we have extra services sometimes and we have house blessings, we have you know, all these kind of things, is not because we think that's the right thing to do. Like it's just we got to be good Christians. We got to do you know, things rightly. Um, it's because we do believe that whatever we do over and over again forms us in some way, that it, it does something to us. And that in the world, there's lots of things that try to form us. <laughs> there's lots of rituals and counter-liturgies that try to shape who we are. Some of them are kind of neutral or they're kind of just fine or okay. Some of them are deeply harmful. Um, James K.A. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, I think that's the book he talks about this, but he talks about the liturgy of the shopping mall and how, like, even if, like, if, if Martians came down and, like, saw our, came from wherever they come from, um, came and saw who we are as a people, they probably would think our shopping malls were our temples <laughs> because of kind of the interactions and exchanges that we have, because they look similarly or they have common themes in every city that you go to because they have wide kind of open doors and their accessibility, because there's icons or pictures of the ideal life all over the place. You know, that's kind of our, our we were at the shopping mall yesterday, so this is kind of fresh in my mind. And, and there's definitely ways that that is seeking you to be, to, informing you to be a kind of person if we do that over and over again. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with going to the shopping mall. We're not fundamentalists who say don't ever you know, do that kind of thing. But, but it does mean we need to pay attention to what this is doing. I mean, you've got the same thing. You walk in the door, you're greeted by someone in a, in a particular store, uh, which is highlighted by a particular icon. You go and you make a transaction with a priest or an intermediary there who, who then asks you, would you like to sign up for our rewards program? Would you like to be initiated into this process? No, I don't really, I'm not ready to be initiated. Well, you'll save 20% today if you, if you do this. You know, we've got these rituals, these commonalities that we uh, have over and over again. And, and it's true with other things. James K. Smith also says our football games have a similar kind of liturgy to them, all these kind of things. But, but part of being a Christian is saying, this is the way I'm seeking to be shaped, is by this particular story. In fact, I noticed this week, I was like, Green Hills Mall is, has a different way they're trying to shape <laughs> than Opry Mills Mall does. You know, they're just, there's kind of a different story that's being told there. Again, not implicating anybody involved in these things. But what we're saying when we gather week after week after week and we say, I want to be a Christian and I'm going to actually read my Bible and pray and do some things, say, I want to be formed by a different story or a different reality because there's other stories that are seeking to shape me. Okay, all of that was not written down in my sermon. I just wanted to share that and say, I think in this season of Epiphany and what our readings, what we're going to hear this week, is that there is something different about the light of Christ that goes out into the world. There's something unique about this reality. This today is the first Sunday in the season of Epiphany. It's a season of recognizing the revelation of God to all people everywhere. 
And over the course of this season, you'll notice our readings focus on the manifestations of God. So the epiphanies, which we use in common language to talk about, I had a revelation, I had a kind of a new thought or a new idea. That usage only goes back to about the 1800s in the English language. Before that, epiphany was only a religious word. It's talking about the revealing of God. Another fancy word similar is theophany, and that's God being revealed, right? God revealed in Christ to the world. So this is a season where God shines light in the darkness. And on the Feast of Epiphany, January 6th, which was Friday, a few of us gathered together for that, we heard the story of the Magi and the star which followed. It may seem like Herod is in charge of our world. It may seem like oppression and violence rules things or runs the world. That's holding on to kind of one set of facts, that the world is dark and scary, and it's not as it should be. But the incarnation of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas says there's a whole other set of facts. There's a new thing that's happening, that God doesn't give up on this dark and scary and murky and chaotic world, that he's the one who draws near. There is a new king who has been born on the underside of power, a true prince of peace and savior of the world. And so today we stand with those two same set of facts. In the midst of chaos, in the, we must never forget that God is near. God has not changed. In fact, I talked about this Friday, but January 6th, in our, unfortunately, in our American consciousness, now has a new connotation to it. When we hear January 6th, most of us in our culture, our mind doesn't go to, yes, that's the Feast of the Epiphany every year. No, we go to another darker thing based on misinformation and disinformation and violence and all of these things, right? But one of the things that we can hold on to is we say, okay, that's one set of facts. We live in a world where that kind of thing happens, where violence seems to rule the day. But we also live in a world where God has drawn near in Christ. We hold those two things together. So how does this work? How does the kingdom of God overcome the kings of the world, kingdoms of the world? How is true peace waged? Well, our readings today and the scriptural story more broadly reveal that it is through humble identification and self-giving love that the kingdom of God advances and the world is made right. Isaiah 42, which Elsie read so wonderfully, begins with an announcement. It's a call to pay attention, okay? Behold what God is doing. In fact, the older translations are kind of better on this because it says, behold, it's an attention-grabbing word. And much of spiritual formation as a Christian is just the call to pay attention, to listen, to be aware. But it's difficult to pay attention. Some of us are in seasons, I know us, some of us are in cluttered seasons, or we're just, we're trying to keep the proverbial plate spinning. That's what we're trying to do right now. And in those moments that we face in those seasons in our life, I do think God is often faithful to grab our attention. There are times where when I'm overwhelmed with kids and work and house stuff and everything, and it's just like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get a moment of quiet reflection that God, by his grace, just breaks in and says, here's what I'm going to say to you right now. So I do believe God does that. But it's so important for us to try to find that space, try to find that time to just stop and ask, God, what are you doing right now in my midst? Where are you at work in this interaction I'm having with a client? 
in the face of a toddler, in the sleepless nights that I'm going through. Where are you now? Lord, speak to me. Here, Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, says, wake up. Behold, I have an announcement to make. And his announcement is, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Eugene Peterson points out that servant is the form in which God deals with the creation. God chooses to act as servant in the world. This servant is upheld by God and the one in whom God delights. It says God has put his spirit upon this servant. Yet, so the servant is like, okay, has God's spirit, speaks on behalf of God, is upheld by God, and yet acts as a servant at the same time. He does his work quietly. Verse three says, he doesn't shout or cry out. He doesn't even break reeds or snuff out wicks. The Lord says, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. This word justice in Hebrew is the word mispot and and justice is a fine translation for the word. Like it's probably the closest we have in English for it, but it's not quite big enough. This word in Hebrew is So in English, when we hear justice, we think of legal equity, okay? But in Hebrew, this word refers to God's order in the world, God putting things right. So it includes legal equity, but it also includes much more. It refers to God putting things right. And the word here is used three times, all right? So it's over and over again. This servant will bring justice. This servant will bring justice. Something about this servant is he will put things right, He doesn't just make a covenant promise with the people. Isaiah says he is the covenant promise. He is the one who is making, who is the promise in the flesh. And his covenant is for everyone, for all nations. So this putting right of the world is not just a vertical relationship with God putting right. It does include that. Like we are put right with God. But somehow this putting right involves relationship between peoples, even warring or conflict-filled peoples, that that's what God has come to bring. And that's so critically important because even Christians today will say like, God doesn't care about social issues in the world. Like God only cares about your relationship with him. And it's just not true given the biblical story. Like everything is restored. Everything is put right in Christ. A scholar named Rodolfo Galvan Estrada III, great name, long name, (laughs) writes, the anticipated light that will shine upon all not only brings salvation, it brings ethnic reconciliation. And that's what we see, this reconciliation among the nations in Christ. So Isaiah says this servant is coming. He has God's spirit. He's upheld by God, but he operates as a servant and he's here to bring about justice. In fact, we can say in in the Christian story, the Judeo-Christian story, that it's in God's rule, justice is brought about exactly that way, through servanthood, through laying your life down. And it says, the servant will open the eyes of the blind. This is often spoken of the open the eyes of the blind is like language for revelation of the truth, revealing what was hidden taking away disinformation and misinformation, and to free the captives from prison. This was often a metaphor for a nation in exile. 
It's clear why the church has connected this promise of a servant who's to come in Isaiah with the coming of Jesus. The servant in, in the Old Testament, we go, okay, what about people who don't believe in Jesus, right? The historically, the Jewish community, like how did they read this passage? Well, it first refers to Israel. Israel is God's servant, the one whom God has called. But Christians believe that somehow in Jesus, and the language in Isaiah backs this up, that there's a specific person, we believe it's Jesus, who rises up and who fulfills specifically Israel's mission for the world. Jesus embodies the nature of a servant. Think about this. Jesus is just talking about this all the time. He describes the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. He talks about these like seemingly insignificant things being lost and then being found. He talks about bringing about the rising of the lowly and the falling of the mighty. And God's spirit is upon him. We'll see that in the gospel reading. Everything he does involves the right ordering of a disordered world. In and through him, former things give way to new things. Peterson writes, he has called us to embrace his methods and be servants ourselves. The way of the world is to use power and coercion to get things done. The way of the Christian is to use love, gentleness, and service to redeem the race. The world uses the authority of kings and generals to compel justice. The Christian becomes a servant and provides justice. As we talk about this light that goes out to all nations, our reading from the book of Acts is significant. It is Peter's speech to Cornelius's family, saying God has revealed to him, God has shown Peter that God has no partiality. He has no favoritism. Because of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection and ascension, every person from every nation is brought into the family of God. And as you read the book of Acts, you see this trajectory that happens. I encourage you to read it sometime and, and see how it kind of the call just goes out, like the light just expands and extends. So Acts 2, we see the Holy Spirit falling on believers in Jerusalem, right? Jewish believers at the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts 8, we see the Holy Spirit falls on Samaritans, who are kind of like the Jewish like neighbors, okay? Man, sorry, my thing just keeps falling, and it's distracting. I apologize. Um, then we see at last here in this uh, verse, these verses, that the Spirit comes upon the Gentiles as well. So it goes from Jewish believers to Samaritan believers to Gentile believers. But the story of Cornelius, this guy who's a Gentile, he's not part of the uh, original family of Abraham, he's, uh, but he fears God. He, he honors God. It opens the floodgates. So we have this Gentile family, the family of Cornelius, who are there, they're kind of pushing their face against the glass. They're listening. God, will you work in our lives? What are you doing with us? They haven't been welcomed in, but they're longing for the Spirit. Cornelius tells Peter the ways in which God revealed himself to him. And if we look at the broader story, Peter himself is given a vision. And he's given, his conclusion of his vision is that the outsiders are invited into the family. In fact, this becomes shocking to Peter. Peter is upended. He's overturned. He's disoriented. He's like, okay, God, if everybody's welcomed in, I don't know who the insiders and the outsiders are anymore. And that's kind of the point. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I don't have control over this story. 
So standing before this family, Peter makes a stunning declaration that this message is for everyone. God's desire has always been for all people. N.T. Wright summarizes Peter's preaching this way. Cornelius, the God whom you have worshipped from afar has done all of this as part of his global plan to set everything right at last, at every stage. Jesus is in the middle of it all. God has thus fulfilled the purposes for which he called Israel in the first place. And you, Cornelius, and everyone everywhere who believes this message will receive a welcome at once, without more ado, into the family whose home has written in shining letters above the door the wonderful word forgiven. We're told just after that, and just after our reading today, that while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit acts and works on all who heard the message. So then there's these Christians and they come from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, and they're shocked. In fact, the words for epiphany, I think that are best, are surprised, shocked, and upended. That's what the light of Christ does. It changes us. It upends us. These are epiphany words. This is what light does. And they're shocked, they're surprised because nothing like this had ever happened before. They're not prepared for it. And I love, this was important to me, that Willie, Willie James Jennings says their surprise was not that the people were receptive to their message, okay? Because they kind of expected that. Like, we're going to go to these Gentiles, and we're going to tell them the good news of Jesus, and they're going to receive it. They're going to respond. No, their surprise was that the witness came from the Gentiles to them, that God was already working among Cornelius before they even got there. All of this takes place in a Caesarea, which was not too far from Jerusalem. It wasn't the ends of the earth. But if you break down the cultural wall of Jew and Gentile, Caesarea might as well be the ends of the earth. It opens the floodgates for everybody to be welcomed in. The Christian faith is constantly moving through cultural boundaries. In fact, that's the uniqueness of our faith. Um, This is illustrated that Christianity is the only religion in the world whose primary source documents, the New Testament, are not in the language of the founder. So Jesus, we believe his native language was Aramaic, right? But the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. So already we have this language barrier that's being broken. (laughs) That, okay, this is for more people than just the insiders. This isn't true of Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, that are all still rooted in their original locations and geographic locations. That's not their, um, and languages. This is not to their fault. I'm not faulting them. I'm just saying there's something about Christianity that's unique. We don't have a central place. There's not a, like, the Christian place. (laughs) No, we have everywhere. And we have no Christian native language. Christianity is inherently a missionary movement. It's always going out and it's always being proclaimed. And the book of Acts, we ultimately see this with Acts 15, where the Jerusalem council decides once and for all that Gentile Christians don't need to become Jewish before they enter into the family of God, that they don't need to do all the cultural practices. 
This pattern continues throughout church history. So one example comes from the 5th century, and I've shared this before, but Rome was sacked in 410 AD, right? And all these different invaders, they called them barbarians at the time, but all these different invaders came from all over the place, pouring into Europe, just invading the continent. And the church had an interesting response. Instead of fighting back, they evangelized the invaders, So the invaders became Christian. And as you look throughout history, these new invaders or barbarians became more faithful Christians than the Romans were. That's just kind of how our story works. Now, a caution is necessary here. Crossing cultural boundaries is a powerful thing to do. Just as religion itself is very powerful. But you can cross cultural boundaries as crusaders or you can cross cultural boundaries as servants. Those are different things. A crusader crosses cultural boundaries because they think they're entitled either to take something or they're there to fix something. A servant is different. A servant trusts that the spirit is already at work across the boundary, that the spirit goes ahead. The servant trusts the spirit. Christians are called as servants, but the problem as we look at church history is we often mistake our calling and we become crusaders. Sometimes they're mixed together. This is what's so hard. You read the history of missionary movements throughout history, and there are often impulses of servanthood and impulses of crusading side by side each other. And that's tough. That's messy. How do we know the difference? Well, before Peter could proclaim the good news, he had to listen to how the good news had already been working in Cornelius. Yes, Cornelius needed what Peter had to say. Don't get me wrong on that, okay? Cornelius needed what Peter had to say. He needed to hear the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus and allow that to change him. But before Peter could even proclaim it, he needed to hear Cornelius' story. I think this is important for us because everyone you encounter has a story. And somewhere in their story, often throughout their story, God is at work. So our first calling as Christians is to listen, to pay attention to what God is already doing in our neighbor. The gospel reading opens up with a character who is very familiar to us through Advent, John the Baptist. He's been a regular in our readings. And John's baptizing people. Okay, so what does that mean? Because we think of baptism, and it has to do with Jesus' death and resurrection. But he had not died and rose again yet. So what's he doing? Well, John is telling the people they need to be re-immersed in their story. They need to remember their story. Why? Because they had forgotten it. And he's saying something huge is about to happen. The kingdom of God is coming, and you need to remember who you are as the people of God in order for that thing to come. In the Bible, whenever you hear about water or the sea, there's this element that's talking about evil and chaos and disorder. So the waters represented that which was murky and uncontrollable, chaotic and messy, right? The seas were mysterious and they still are outside of our control. Maybe you've seen, um, I love this, uh, there's this Facebook account that I follow that is just dumb, but it's like called, it's called like, what's it called? Um, Ridiculous maps or something like that. And it's like, it's just maps that don't really mean anything. They don't really make sense, but they're really, they're kind of funny. Uh, But if you look at some of the older medieval maps, like 
you notice they thought the world was flat, right? And then you would, they'd have all the world that they knew, and then what's on the edges in the waters? Sea monsters. <laughs> so there's all these sea monsters out there because that's what they believe. If you go too far off the edge, you're going to go to that which we don't know, and it's chaotic and messy, and you're probably going to get eaten. Well, that's how ancient people thought about it. It's not to their fault. It's, it's, that's part of the symbolism that's here, is that the waters always mean that which is chaotic or murky. So in the book of Genesis, when God is the one who hovers over the waters, he's the one who hovers over the disorder and the chaos and the messiness. Our God is Lord over all of it. And so creation becomes this way of ordering the chaos, ordering the darkness. So why baptism? Well, in addition to Genesis, the story of Exodus was the central story for the people of God. So they're delivered from slavery in Egypt, and then they cross the Red Sea. They go through the waters. That becomes a formative experience for them. The children of Israel are saved through the murky chaos, through the waters. So John the Baptist is saying, in order to be ready for this thing that's about to happen, you need to remember and know at the core of who you are, you're a Red Sea people. You're a through the waters people, a through the chaos people. The God has parted the waters for you and has sent you through it. God delivered you. God was faithful. Yes, he's been silent for a while. We've not heard from God through the prophets in a while. But you're still those people. And this wasn't just a simple reminder. They didn't just need to remember intellectually. Hey, remember the Red Sea. Remember that story. They needed to be reminded physically. They needed to walk it out. They needed to go through it. And at this time, John had recognized that something was off, like, Israel had embraced a bunch of different varieties of nationalism. So there were some groups that believed at this time that violence was their only answer to the world's problems. They needed to storm the Roman palaces and take back their authority. Some believed if they were just pure enough, they could exclude those icky sinners and outsiders. God would deliver them. Some believe that really Rome is up to something. They must be doing something good because they have this huge empire. So we should just cozy up to them, even if it means a little bit of compromise along the way. Some ran away from society and lived in the desert, creating a utopian society. As we hear all of those different movements, I think we could probably, some of them sound kind of familiar, don't they? (laughs) We think about, okay, those seem like some of the stories that swirl in our world too. Well, in the midst of all of that, John says to God's people, remember your identity. Remember who you are. Remember you've been delivered by God and are called to be a light to the nations. And after Christ's death and resurrection, at Christ's direction, Christians reinterpret baptism in light of him. So this is a moment of new creation. God is once again in baptism hovering over and in the midst of the waters. So not only are Christians Red Sea people, the people grafted into the family who was delivered through the Red Sea, we're resurrection people. We went under the water and somehow participated in Christ's death, came out the other side and somehow participated in Christ's resurrection. After John calls them to repentance, he says in the verses right before our reading that someone greater than he is coming. And he will baptize you not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, the children of Israel had another part of their story. After they crossed the Red Sea, they were led into the desert. And in the desert, God was with them 
in the form of a cloud during the day and fire at night. God was present with them, close to them. And Israel's hope was that one day God would be with them in an even more personal way. So John is saying, I'm calling you back into the story, but there is one who is coming who will actually be God's presence. God's Holy Spirit with you and in you. And then Jesus arrives. And everybody, including John, is surprised at how Jesus acts. That John's been kind of whipping up the crowd and proclaiming the importance of the one who's coming. And then Jesus arrives and just asks humbly to be baptized. He wants to share in the repentance of Israel. Now, of course, John responds by saying, no, 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 no. Like, I should not baptize you. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus' response is really important. He says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus understands something which John does not understand. Yes, all the things John has said about Jesus will come to pass. He's going to clear things out. He's going to bring justice. But if he's going to do that, it's going to happen by humbly identifying himself with sinful humanity. He will experience every part of the human reality, including death itself. And it's important that even after his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus did not leave us alone. The Holy Spirit lives in our hearts the most personal way that God could live among us. At Christmas, we celebrated the fact that the one that our God is the one who draws near. Our God is the one who gets into the chaos with us. He steps into the mess and the muck and that which seemingly has no purpose. He steps into our humanity in order to recover it and remake who we were created to be. If John's baptism is for repentance, why did Jesus get baptized? He didn't have sin to repent from. Well, the good news is he was baptized for and with us. He stepped into our lives and our world and our mess and healed it from the inside. Rowan Williams says, Jesus has to come down fully to our level to where things are shapeless and meaningless, in a state of vulnerability and unprotectedness if real humanity is to come to birth. In Jesus' baptism, some powerful things happen. I'm almost done here. The heavens are torn open. So in other words, we see this veil that separates how this world should be and how the world is. That veil is ripped apart. So we see everything clearly, everything as it should be. In Celtic, Christianity, they have a name for this. It's called a thin place. I believe that there's certain places in the world that are like thinner than other places, like the veil between this life and the next life are a little bit you know, uh, more transparent than they are ordinarily. This right here is the ultimate thin place. It's the intersection that, it's the intersection where things are revealed as they truly are. Christ's identity is fully known and our identity is fully known in him. In the midst of the darkness and the murkiness and the mess, for all of us, we so often forget who we are. 
That's what I was trying to say earlier with the different narratives about our world. It's so easy to believe other things about who we are, and some of them are so destructive. Some of us carry so many messages about shame that have been told to us about ourselves or about what it means to be successful or valuable or significant, and we just have a better identity. In God's space, we hear his voice clearly. And the spirit descends, it says. The church has believed that when a Christian is baptized, the Holy Spirit is at work and rests on them. The Spirit is embodied here in a dove, which seems really odd. I have a friend who did his um, PhD work on this phrase, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, like his whole, like, wrote like a book on like that thing. And he said, I'm doing a lot of research on birds right now. Wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> well, what does that mean? Well, it may mean a lot of things, but historically, a dove has indicated peace. The idea is the spirit brings peace, restoration, and wholeness. And then a voice comes from heaven. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. This is a direct quote from our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 42. My chosen one in whom I delight. This is said over Jesus and somehow in him, this is what God has said over the Christian at baptism. This is who we are. So this raises a question. If God is with us in the chaos, if that's his, our story, God comes into us, into our life with the mess um, and the muck and stands with us, where ought the church to be? Where ought the baptized be? Where ought the Christians be? William says, Christians will be found in the neighborhood of Jesus, but Jesus is found in the neighborhood of human confusion and suffering, defenselessly alongside those in need. If being baptized is being led to where Jesus is, then being baptized is being led towards the chaos and the neediness of a humanity that has forgotten its own destiny. But here's one more element of this. It's not just the world where we find chaos. It's not just, oh yeah, those outsiders or my neighbors or the people in the cubicles next to me. There's chaos in me. Maybe it's just me. I don't know if you guys agree, but there's stuff in me that's not ordered rightly. I believe there's stuff in all of us that's true. So Christians are those who sit there too, who become attuned to the mess in our own lives, the stuff that needs to be purposed. But the good news is we're not just in the middle of mess. We're in the middle of God's great love because Jesus is there with us and the Father still declares over us that we are his beloved, the one in whom he delights. This week, we're challenged to remember our story and our identity as the people of God. Our hope for the world as Christians is defined by how we are oriented towards God, our perception of God. What are the stories we're living into? What is our hope? How do we understand our identity? Sometimes we catch ourselves maybe going, well, my hope is just, I got to get my life under control. <laughs> if I can just get everything ordered and my ducks in a row, that's really my hope. Everything will be better. Sometimes it's just, well, if I can just hide enough, <laughs> maybe nobody will find out who I really am and then they won't reject me. Sometimes our hope is, I just need to climb the next rung of the American dream ladder, <laughs> get the next thing. We're invited into a better story. 
Friends, you are loved by God. He has called you his beloved. Our political ideology is not going to be our hope. It's not going to get us where we need to go. There's a better way and a better story for our world. The light has come. Yes, it's still dark. It's still murky and messy. But God has joined us in the mess, in the chaos, hovering over and within the waters, bringing about new creation. May we turn to the light and away from the shadows. May we know the God who has joined us in the waters and has brought about new creation. And may we stand with a grieving world that has forgotten its hope. And when we do so, know we're also standing in the middle of the heart of God, the ecstatic joy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.